There was this idea back in 2013 to make an expectations versus reality kind of video. You know, like, this is what you think America is, but this is how it actually feels. It could have been a quick, maybe even viral um, outlet for my feels at that time. But the thing with my feelings at that time was that it was not just a mere exasperation of having to deal with things constantly being foreign. It was the slow, embarrassing disappointment that something I had unconsciously held up so high, this study abroad experience in America, was falling short. And I didn't know why, and I just had to deal with it, and there was no way I could pretend that it wasn't happening. Five odd years later, past all that reactivity and finger-pointing and self-reflection, these same events bring insight. In the form of an audio series, thank you very much. That's the only acceptable case for bringing so much past into the present. The past is in your life in an interesting way when you're back where you came from after time abroad. Whether you have a job waiting for you back home or you need to start from scratch, the mind makes frequent visits to that time as an international student. Besides the nostalgia, there's the human tendency to see how it all fits to put it all in order to unlock the deeper meaning of this experience. And an investigative piecing together of events, it almost never happens as you're going through the experience. And hence, we have this episode serving as a retrospective with my guest Anushya. For her too, going abroad to study wasn't a yearning per se. It was more like, this is what you do if you're serious about your art. Photography in her case. She returned to India almost two years ago after doing her master's at the School of Visual Arts in New York. Aliens. With visas. I'm in Bangalore. I recently got married, which is probably another reason why I wanted to come back. Congratulations, <laughs> uh, yes. Thank okay. you. I work at this uh, institution. It's an educational institution, and I do communications and social media for them. And then I also do uh, my photography on the side as much as I can, although not as much as I would want. I haven't freelanced uh, after I got back. If it's anything like what it was before I left, it's going to be fucking hard. <laughs> you know? It is a struggle anywhere in the world to be on your own, definitely. But I think there, there are, you know, very unique challenges to uh, freelancing in India in that a lot of people expect you to work for free. And that expectation is sort of very layered and it's deep-rooted and it's very mm. deep-seated. For something like art or for something like photography, it's not taken seriously. Unless you fall in into a specific category of photographer, fashion, or if you're doing uh, wildlife, and that's kind of like the spectrum that people expect you to be in. Maybe I'm, I'm generalizing, I'm sure it's changing now and everything, but anywhere you go in India, the creative uh, field is definitely, it gets the raw deal. Whether you're a copywriter or whatever, you know, you always have those crazy clients that you have to deal with who milk you dry, you know, for the least mm -hmm. amount of money. The other thing that I feel is a huge setback for freelancers is the fact that a lot of people I've noticed are not very open about sharing their experiences or sharing their journeys, their learning journeys or whatever. You know, even in terms of being transparent about how much you charge, for example, like within photography circles, at least before how it used to be about five years back, is that it's so difficult to... Um, 
figure out how what people charge how do you mm. set your charges according to the market values just generally also photographers being sort of you know very um protective of their mm. processes and you know things like that that culture of sharing knowledge is something that i don't know if it's there or if maybe i haven't experienced it it's a lonely road for freelancers from deciding payments to figuring out their own creativity both equally explosive matters putting a price on your work for instance that's a crucial learning phase for anyone in this field it usually starts with getting out there and doing gigs for exposure around this time it seems audacious to even be paid to do something that comes so naturally something that you just love so that's why you always have that 21 year old photographer with a dslr who's willing to do the job cheap or even free It's a rite of passage, a phase that might never end unless an artist breaks down his or her value. What is unique about your way of working? That's a start when it comes to fixing your fee with clients. Maybe it's the quality you bring, maybe it's the turnaround time. I could go on and on, and you'll notice that all of these things are subjective. What's gorgeous to me is mediocre to someone else. 5 days is too much time, too little time. When all the subjectives rack up against you one time too many, you're bound to wonder if all clients are bloodsuckers. It feels like a guarded, unfriendly world out there when you're trying to nail your USP in such a volatile setup. Through the highs and lows and rewrites and stumbling blocks, you do come out of it with more confidence and clarity each time. I would argue that there's something to gain from going through the ordeal solo. but it definitely runs a risk of turning super bitter and this kind of turmoil is just not a fun place to be period anusha was able to experiment with lighting and photography at light and life academy in uti india she then got out there with her camera started taking on freelance assignments and it was the growing pains or possibly the very fixed realities of this career path in india that led to plans of higher study I looked at other universities in India like NID and Shristi and you know places like that but uh, for mm-hmm. whatever reasons I wasn't able to get in you know because I think they had a lot of exams and things like that and I I remember that I had to draw and stuff and I was like I I don't draw I can draw stick figures yeah even if it's video photography you need to do these design oriented design things, things you know. and yeah and you know like maybe make something out of whatever <laughs> and I do like to mm. work with my hands and I do like working in the dark room for example I don't know how to do things with my hands otherwise or in a way that's acceptable by them I kind of was also just like freelancing it wasn't going in a very coherent direction either. Either. you know i just uh, i went on this trip once with my other family when i was in the us i said okay fine let me just look at these universities you know and let me see what they're all about i looked at parsons i looked at pratt mm-hmm. i looked at um sva sva is where i finally ended up and then i also looked at the new school i think sva was the only place that i found um you know right from the doorman to even some of the students that i met to some of the faculty that i met and everything were yeah. like really chilled out and really <laughs> you know welcoming and open they didn't have any airs about them of course sure. i mean as i actually went through the program i found all the people with all the airs you know? <laughs> right so, but it but created a great first impression yeah first impression was really nice even after having graduated from that place i would still yeah. say that I'm really happy that I graduated from there not anywhere else. 
What did you feel was the difference between light and life? Did you did you feel that prepared you to some extent or did it really feel like starting from scratch? I think light and life definitely did prepare me for the initial push that I needed. The basics of lighting is something that I had learned at Light and Life Academy, okay. which was which is a good thing. But I think there was something uh, to be said for the the lack of knowledge that I had about art in 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 a very you know conceptual kind of way. I know that Shishti and NID and all have very conceptual basis also that they work on when it comes to right. studying art and everything. So I don't want to generalize, but a lot mm. of people, a lot of photographers focus a lot on the technique of photography. Mm. The other finer nuances of, of it are kind of um, not spoken about as much. I'll, st- I'll just say that. They're not spoken yeah. about as much. I had major strides to make when it mm. came to art history or theory and stuff like that. The last year in that program was pretty tough and it was very intense and um you know a lot of a lot of like doubting my abilities and you know all mm. of that stuff that i think kind of comes with a, a very stressful very intense kind of program yeah. the other thing that happened uh, when i was there also is that i was surrounded by a lot of people who were very focused who knew exactly what they wanted and that's the nature of new york city it's full of people who always have purpose like right from mm. the way people walk every day in the street to the kinds of calendars that they have going of you know where they schedule people in for hangout sessions 3 months mm. in advance or something you're always moving from point A to point B with absolute confidence mm. because i wasn't like that it kind of made me really uh, wonder what the hell i was doing your vision is the window into your mind your creativity and that is what an admissions committee is looking for when you apply to a film program at any foreign university If you are a filmmaker, graduate school is where you make that promising film to take to festivals to get your name out there. The goal should ideally be to use the resources, equipment, and network to push a somewhat already established career in whichever art form to the next level. That's the way to get bang for your buck, I would say. Rankings don't matter as much. However they do in tech fields uh I believe it matters during the job search that's what I hear it's a form of filtration for an art school though not as much particularly if this is your first real international exposure going to tish would help but not going certainly doesn't alter your chances of being a successful filmmaker a big school helps with alumni network so choose wisely i relied on internet research for rankings reviews and comparisons but classroom experience i think i almost wanted to be dazzled on some level cuz when i reached out to alumni my questions were always they were always general like is this whole thing worth it not what my day to day would be like how many people were there in your class i think in every crit class we had about um let's say about 10 to 15 people okay. not okay. even 15 actually 15 is pushing it but Ten mm. people, and uh, were you really happy with your professors, or was it a sort of impersonal connection? Um, I was happy. I mean, it's kind of difficult to say because in the beginning, I was just happy with anything because anything was exposure. Mm. You know what I mean? From not having any exposure whatsoever, and not having been in those—that's another thing. Like I wasn't in those art circles before mm. I went there. 
you know yeah. i think a lot of people have been in those art circles and have been speaking art speak for a while before they right. go there and that made makes a huge difference when you land up in a class first two years almost i was you know still kind of like learning how to speak about work how to speak about my work and everything so yeah there were professors who were annoying and who didn't get it and mm-hmm. one of them was also like sort of you know tokenizing me as like the only indian kid in class mm-hmm. and like anything that comes up about india is like oh so anusha what do you feel and, oh so anusha how is it there and you know i i was like i don't know like mm-hmm. <laughs> like i really have no idea <laughs> i haven't tra- traversed every corner of india to like sure. know what it is or whatever you know so there were there were things like that that happened but more or less i think i learned something from every professor okay. because i was going through such a steep learning curve i didn't really have the time to be like oh i don't like this person or i don't like that person or uh, you know whatever right yeah i think my professors were i mean they, they did their job for sure but i never felt like anyone took you know any special interest in sort of giving me feedback on my work but then again i always think about where i was as a creative i don't think i had a very defined sense of what i wanted to do exactly but i, I wouldn't say it was just feeling all yeah. about either so um yeah and i think sometimes mm-hmm. i think that when you go to a film school or any sort of art school if mm-hmm. you come out with just that with just this one person who's really experienced who gives enough of a crap to you know give you feedback on your work that yeah. could be that's yeah. kind of that's the yeah. biggest takeaway yeah i think i think for me also i kind of uh, didn't have that mm. a lot because i mean because it's mostly my uh, my experience also right yeah. because a lot of kids were coming into coming into grad school knowing exactly who is teaching which class and at which semester you know they knew like their entire life history <laughs> crazy the amount of research that they put into going there right that again comes to like a slight culture gap mm. you know in a way one is of course that a lot of us don't know how schools work there until oh, yeah. you actually land up there mm. you don't know this whole semester system mm-hmm. because most of us are not exposed to it yeah. most of us are not exposed to the whole you know asking questions in class so openly right from those small little things all the way up till researching and knowing who's teaching and knowing two years in advance which class you want to take yeah. because that person's teaching that just gives you a different kind of perspective yeah. once you start your course how was it being the only indian in the class it was really strange you know because it it, it I I could never be myself completely almost like you know I was in this Miss India pageant or something <laughs> like I'm representing the country and like uh, yeah. yeah you know somebody's going to swoop in and be like no don't say this about your country because like you're representing it and you know like right. you know, all of those weird very illogical things in my head and i felt like i could never make any tight connections with people for the first 6 months at least Yeah, I I would say that too and I feel like I couldn't do that for a very long time in my program. Mm-hmm. Um also because I I just felt like I was too laid back for the program. I felt like I was in the wrong place because everybody around me was super focused about talking to the right people and mm-hmm. you know getting their work seen by the right people which is which is really good. If you're focused enough to know all of that shit then like wow go ahead and do it. But <laughs> I just wasn't, you know, and I was yeah. just like floundering in a good way. In a good way. Basically oh, yeah. what would happen is that because yeah. they're all so focused, you know, all of the conversation mm-hmm. would revolve around their worlds right and their worlds are all focused and mine isn't so mm. it, it would just <laughs> never collide 
it's like always being one step behind. A grad program can be like a secret society if you don't understand the concept of office hours or how graduate assistants are chosen. People who know this are the ones who know what class they want two years before the course begins. They know the professor's work. They know how to hold a conversation about his or her work and they ask the right questions with blatant admiration. Their clearly defined purpose is a direct consequence of their exposure to the way academia works, the photography industry at large and the art community in this case. But there's no shame in being a little behind in a culture that's not as fixated on, let's say, toppers. This is America where people get degrees whenever, age no bar, we've all heard that, where just getting into college is such an achievement. Compare this to where I come from. My society's view of education and achievement, and uh, that's where things got uncomfortable. When I accidentally took an advanced lighting class, I chose not to trust my own judgment and go through with it only because culturally dropping out, it, it just doesn't happen. It's, it's pretty shameful. But okay, that's hardly a big deal. The greatest minds faced their fears and I did. With more fears, I looked really bad in comparison to the rest of the students in this class who all happened to be uh, typically hipster millennial undergrads, you know, so very cool and self-involved, kind of entitled, annoyingly sure of themselves. Nothing like what I was at 21 in India, but this was not the average 21-year-old in America either, I was soon gonna learn. I just felt smaller and smaller. And then I had this phone conversation with the professor while discussing lighting plans for an assignment. And it was a combination of things. Bad reception and me mumbling, but the professor goes, It's okay, I understand, English is not your first language. And it's okay if you can't express yourself as clearly. I wouldn't be able to speak your language. And I should have spent the rest of that semester pretending I don't speak English. It could have gotten me out of a lot of stress and assignments. But see, at that time, full disclosure, I was just out here trying to not cause a scene, preferably disappear. Eventually, my nervousness, I'd say, allowed for comments like, take it easy and, you know, don't, don't lift it if it's too heavy. Somewhere in all this, I like to think I picked up something about lighting. So clearly, to me, education was seeped in fear. Fear of failure, loss of image, fear of offending. And with fear, learning is compromised. You can't capitalize on the system if you don't know what it is. But you can if you know who you are. The kind of fear and trepidation I faced in that class revealed a side of me that I did not like, but I was curious where it came from. All this intimidation and self-consciousness. Why did this English comment annoy the heck out of me? And what was this world inhabited by seemingly confident millennials and how was it so different from mine? Do you know the secrets of making friends? What was it that made you start liking New York? Regardless of anything that was happening, I just loved the city itself. The energy of the city, of you know, so many people being there and so many people from around the world. So it wasn't only one kind of person in it or whatever, yeah. you know? So it kind of reminded me of Bombay and that's where I've grown up. There's a certain sense of freedom and independence that you get when you're in Bombay yeah. versus many other metro cities in India also. I felt a lot more free in, in New York City than even Bombay. You know, I was able to just 
go wherever I wanted to go and something as simple as that something yeah. that probably a lot of people take for granted but it I couldn't because that that was that to mm-hmm. me was a luxury and and now I'm also mm-hmm. back to you know having uh, my mobility curtailed a lot I'm not saying that New York City was absolutely safe I think a lot of people would also be like you know oh you 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 come back home from from school at like 3 am that's that's fine because america is kind of safer than india uh, uh-uh. but no it's not mm-hmm. but but the point is still that i could still do it though you know yeah. without people wondering why i'm do it doing it they probably be like why are you out so late but they wouldn't ask it in the way that people ask in india in fact that kind of crystallized in my thesis project because that was one of the main things that made me wonder what others feel about this new found freedom or maybe they don't look at it as freedom or whatever but i just wanted to kind mm-hmm. of figure out what other women mm-hmm. felt about these things it was such a huge reason for me to like new york city that it also became a part of my project you know my thesis yeah. The other thing that really helped me is that I moved from Manhattan to Queens 2 years into being there. Right. And that really completely changed my perspective on so many things. Queens, I I'm sure you know, is like a melting pot of yeah. hundreds of cultures from all around the world. Even more so in Queens where you don't see as many white people all the time. Mm. You know what Mm-mm-mm. I mean like If you're in Manhattan, you see a lot more. You see everybody, yes, but you also see but Caucasian presence is is very <laughs> much there. But then in Queens it felt yeah. like it was uh more of, you know, people from around the world except for like <laughs> white people. We were the majority there. Basically people of color were were the majority there. It just it, I just felt home to a different level mm-hmm. to a very large extent just feeling home made me more uh creatively aware and interested in actually even continuing mm-hmm. whatever creative pursuits I had For me too comfort came from a place outside the university My silver lining was my housing situation I lived with an American family in their townhouse and it was here that I had my first interaction with a person of color Until then, my view of this country was the graduate class of the film department of the Communication School of Boston University. I snapped out of my myopic view of America and my misery once I made an authentic connection. An immigrant and a person of color are invisible in different ways, and in that pain we shared a bond. It came at a time when I was pulling all stops to feel better with logic, if you want to call it that. that you know all of this discomfort was just a case of being in a new environment and you know a lack of preparedness plain fear but all these reasons still fell short of what was really going on i felt like i was lacking in some way as a person and you know i've had self esteem issues anyone who's been through adolescence has grappled with that to some degree but when the dynamics of race something far deeper was brought to my attention it was as though my new friend had the superpower of verbalizing a kind of oppression i felt but couldn't quite express and i mean oppression in just being myself i felt attacked by other people's easygoing cheer how do they not have these loud visible emotions how are they so effortlessly sure of themselves and by they i meant white people because majority of boston university was white 
Universities are white spaces, I can now tell you. And since that was my first exposure, really, to America, it was all affirming my subconscious notion that America was predominantly white. You won't notice this if you're a high achiever, I think. In a weird way, you'd probably feel like you belong, which is the only explanation I can think of of why Indian immigrants are always shown as being so happy in Harvard and MIT. But without that cloak of academic excellence and thus being understood, you're just different. And at first, as someone who hasn't grown up in North America, the words brown, black, and white in reference to people makes your skin crawl. It's too literal. And uh, also because no one back home refers to white people as a collective. They're just some folks we had a tiff with for about 200 years, but everything's fine now. And who'd even bring that up? In fact, we don't even interact with them on a daily basis. Except for unfair and lovely ads. <laughs> like, that's where we see them. We come with a lot of baggage when it comes to talking to um, people from even Europe or wherever. I'm only talking on, on behalf of Indian mm. people that, that I've seen. I mean, yeah. in my experience, yeah. at least. Talking to people who are white is like... It, I've seen people do really strange things. I've definitely seen people bending over backwards to sort of be nice and acceptable in those circles. I've been to parties sometimes where, you know, there's like the other Indian person mm. and me. Mm. And then it's been like, you know, the other Indian person has completely studiously avoided me. Oh, yeah. why. But I remember <laughs> that being yeah. very much a thing. We both see each other. We're yeah. both like, okay, they see, they see. I see you. But... You know, we're not interacting, which is like the strangest thing. So I'm not saying that everybody's been like that, but it's happened, yeah. you know. It's happened often enough for me to see a pattern. I think Indian people, a lot of times they feel the need to be like, I am not like everyone else. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. I'm my own person. Because if you think about it, at least this is my theory again, we grew up sort of not having that sense of individuality as much as, you know, probably other people do in other cultures. So I think for us, suddenly when we're encountered or when we encounter that kind of, that level of individuality that we see around us, yeah. we're suddenly like, oh my God, I can be anyone I want. Like what? <laughs> like, you know, you know it's, it's too much. It's too mm. much for us to handle. We're like, mm. I don't know what to do, you know, yeah. with all of this individuality. Like, yeah. I, I don't know who to be. Right. So, and then, and, but at the same time, I think, we're a very adaptive culture that way. In everyday life, we adapt to each other so much. You say adapt, you don't say adjust. So I guess, I mean, yeah, because I, I feel like it's a bit of that too. You know, we just, yeah, just whatever gets the job done in the least problematic way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. I, I don't mean that it's a bad thing. I think a lot of people also look at it as, mm. oh, you know, we kind of change our colors according to the, you know, the fair wind blowing, whatever, or something like that. But initially, I used to totally judge people. I totally was like, oh my God, why are you rolling your R so much? What's wrong with you? Yeah. Oh my God, forgotten where you're from, or what? And you know, all of that yeah. stuff. You know, like, yeah. I, used to, I used to really be a mean, judgy person about mm. all of that stuff. But I think as I also went through just everyday life there, I kind of started realizing that you you just have to do what you you got to do you just to be adaptable it, you know? and, like you said yeah yeah and and you need to get by the way that you can mm, yeah. that's about it it's yeah. as simple as that it's difficult to talk about this process also right because like how can mm. you have a problem with such a great country yeah. like 
like what's wrong with you like and also you know there's also that guilt that you feel that oh like you know i'm being given this opportunity to be here and you know i just need to like suck everything up and do everything mm. and just dash on regardless yeah yeah even my friends back home um it used to get very difficult to talk to them about you know the the realities of actually being there and living there and and not just you know not just being like an indian person there or whatever but but just being a person you know like who's who's not part of that culture you know who's who doesn't know what's happening sometimes even though you speak the language you speak english but you have no idea what's happening around you sometimes it's a very strange feeling you know because you're like i can understand the words yeah. coming out of someone's mm-hmm. mouth but i'm like i don't understand it at the same time i've always thought that i was this person who was like oh my god impeccable english i speak really well and you know like mm. and that's always been that yeah. um, uh, source of pride right and then i go there and people can't understand me and like i have to keep repeating myself and it it really messed with my head a lot <laughs> i get you for so, sure i totally yeah. get what you say also like about mm. repeating yourself about saying mm. things differently and you know all of that yeah. and being corrected also Like, oh, like being yes. corrected with your english and i was like listen i don't need to be corrected by you like <laughs> you guys make so many so many errors all the time also but i don't do any of that stuff i don't correct you because that's american english or whatever this is something that i think is pretty unique to students coming from countries with a colonial past you know we share a conflicting relationship with our past oppressors we hold them responsible for most things good and some of the bad in our present day scenarios english is often believed to be one of the gifts a symbol of excellence bringing much pride and now we have a generation of people who think speak write breathe english when someone non indian especially white implies that english isn't your language you don't immediately protest not entirely because you're polite but because somewhere deep down you know you're triggered because you've always wondered too a teensy bit how indian am i if all my tastes and preferences in music movies books all the things that matter even the way i think is non-traditional or non-indian what is indian about me even these questions to yourself are in english On one hand I'm uncomfortably aware and quite frankly shocked that I'm so touchy about this. English is this integral to my identity, but uh it doesn't work the other way around. See, I can't have English, but people around me can enjoy my culture. From chicken tikka masala to Coachella bindis to vinyasa, you know, you can partake in all of that, but I don't get to call myself a native speaker of English. I think there's a lot of pressure that we uh, we as Indian kids feel of making it there and making it a success there mm. and uh, like sticking it out there when i was doing a documentary on jackson heights mm. that was also kind of me just going around and asking people mm. about their lives and sort of very open ended and a lot of yeah. them would not talk to me because yeah. they were worried 
that it'll go back to wherever they're from, Bangladesh or India or Pakistan or wherever, it'll go back there yeah. that they're, they're working as a, as a cab driver or they're working as a, you know, in, in, in a 7-Eleven or uh. something like that. So a lot of them didn't even talk to me because of that. I'll also throw in that, you know, I was even offering $25 gift cards and I was like, this is my last resort. I'm shelling out 25 bucks if you just talk to me for like five minutes. It's a very deep-rooted... I don't mm. want to engage with you kind of thing. Yeah. It it was just interesting to see that even even people who were probably, you know, recent immigrants also like really, really didn't want to talk about yeah. it. If you kind of take it to the student level mm. also like there's a lot of those pressures that we have. You have to show that you made a success of yourself there. But the other thing that made me wonder also when I finally did find somebody who wanted to speak to me was that, you know, they were like, actually, you know what? And mm-hmm. the questions that I was asking them, right? I was asking them, like, how do you feel? Yeah. How is the experience been? And they were like, you know what? Nobody's ever asked me this before. Wow. You know, nobody's ever, like, actually sat down and spoken to me about how do you feel about this? It's always been, like, you should be fine, right? You, sh- you should just be fine because you're in America. You're the land mm-hmm. of opportunities. And it's kind of like what we also yeah. went through, of feeling guilty about not liking what mm-hmm. you were, yeah. what you're experiencing there. The importance attached to a good image and the tendency to resolve issues without any unwanted attention, you know, this explains our tag of model minority. But it manifests as a vague fear, evident in Anusha's interviewees. If diluting emotions and elements of their identity is what it takes for a pleasant survival, then they're okay with that. There is no admittance to any struggle that is in any way unfair. It's just seen as a way of life. Adjustment is a truly Indian trait, and in its best version is a powerful form of tolerance that allows a country as chaotic as about 50 New Yorks to be so functional. For those moving back after study, it helps to bring back this attitude not just to everyday living, but also to your definition of success. You know, I've never been a very ambitious kind of person. I've never been like, oh my God, you know, by 30, I'll be doing this and by 50, I'll be doing that. For me, I think what's more important is that am I being the best person that I can be? The best version and the best version of the artist also. Am I being true to it? You know, yeah. am I not? Am I doing it because I really, really want to do it and because it feels natural and authentic? Mm. Or am I doing it because mm. just because I need to sell something? Which is also good. Yeah. It's also fine because the struggle mm. is real. I'm, I'm very lucky to have amazing people around me and also have a really nice uh, place to work at where people have also sort of traveled a lot and moved around the world and everything yeah. in, in my current job. That being said, I think it was very hard to like get used to because I was I, I had unlearned a lot of things when I got to the US mm. and learned a lot of things. And now I'm sort of unlearning what I learned <laughs> and then like relearning what I had unlearned. Right. Give me an example of something that you had unlearned when you went there and now you're like, ah, oh, I need that back. Um, I think that thing of sort of giving people space you know, a simple thing of how people comment here, right? They'll be like, oh, you put on so much weight mm. in a very like yeah. matter of fact kind of way. And so that's something that, yeah. you know, I would also probably do before. But then I, I sort of like unlearn that. 
and then I learned to be a little more mm-hmm. respectful of if that's what you call respectful yeah. though but it's respectful in that culture here it's not necessarily respectful that you're not asking about weight even if you do ask about weight mm. it's normal you know so it's it's that culture's version of what is respectful right so I learned that what happened here is that I would get upset every time people would ask personal things like that mm-hmm. the simplest thing about you know mm. people staring at me here we are a country of people who stare who just stare just yeah. look at you straight when they're, cro- they're yeah. passing you also they'll be like in your face staring and that's something that I was used to that is something that I'd normalize and that's something that I would never have thought about before but you know mm. like four years of living in New York City where you have mm. all kinds of people and then you learn how to be around them and you learn how to look past appearances and look at the person behind mm. that right and you have to really you have to and and but then i come back here and then i have to learn to be okay with people asking me very intruding personal questions mm. not getting angry with them or not getting upset about it and to a certain extent i think it's unfair to keep pointing it out also because it's like you're just applying those norms here this is exactly what i'm doing where i go somewhere else and then i expect everybody here to like behave like that because i think that's better or something it's not fair but at the same time i also do feel uncomfortable i remember feeling uncomfortable even before i left about certain kinds of staring so so again it's it's kind of like trying to make that distinction of like what is okay and what is not okay and you know yeah yeah, yeah. i mean yeah staring is not a great thing period but then yeah and it's yeah, too banal it's, uh, you know it's like why why are you mm-hmm. wasting your time thinking about someone staring at you just don't look at them and just ignore them i must say that i'm really happy to be back because i think um, i can finally talk freely there's a lot of that kind of freedom that i feel even mm. though i feel like i've traded in a lot of other kinds of freedoms yeah. i'm happy where i am yeah. right now and i think that is something that is helping me assimilate mm. assimilate back in the eyes of others your success in reassimilation lies in how quickly you find employment so until that happens expect a lot of unwanted suggestions something as simple as what do you do which is how most conversations seem to start can eventually lead to a breakdown if you're not careful Speaking of body shaming, woman and man's planning on what you should be doing with your life, the ugly side of so many things, it's all going to flare up in HD. So, learn to pick your battles and only then does it get better. As far as your personal success in reassimilating goes, you don't know for certain if you're over it and okay with this whole new life until that whole new life comes along, a new job, new old friends, new loves a new routine Anusha's advice to incoming student population is self-care and by that she doesn't mean regularly doing your brows but real self-care like journaling prayer meditation any habit that grounds you a support system and trust me it's a lot harder than it sounds because no form of positivity is embedded in our thought and functioning as a society We don't have uber motivational media in India that says, you know, be yourself and believe in yourself. Anushya credits her long-distance relationship to holding her down when things got crazy. And she wonders aloud about the experience of those of us who don't have that. To have to find companionship in a new city through dating is something that we haven't completely explored yet and we'll get to it in season 2 of Aliens with Visas. Going forward, we continue to look at the expat's journey 
as it becomes more stable and explore what it really means to be American. The other central question is in the realm of success. What makes some predisposed to win? I haven't completely figured that out yet. So, uh, you know, I'd argue that it's more than just the institutions set in place. There's a part of it that's on the individual. And it could very well be the most vital piece. The past, a much wider past, is going to be a theme of interest until it becomes a source of empowerment. And we've started the process with this episode. I hope you'll join me on season two. If you're currently studying abroad, know that you're not alone. Any discomfort you're experiencing is deeper than you think. And together, we're going to get over it once and for all. I'm going to be doing one last tiny episode before we're done for the season. It's going to be a Facebook live session and it will also air as an episode, a podcast episode. So tune in, spread the word, enjoy the Facebook videos, the blog posts and do leave a comment or better yet a review. That's it. Signing off with gratitude and a whole lot of hope.